Welcome. Thanks for coming back. This is the second episode of Better Things with Joe Bianca. In this show, we talk to handicappers and sharp betters about what makes them tick, learn more about them as people. First episode, we talked to David Aragona. This time, we're going to talk to Randy Moss. Hope you enjoy the show. All right, so we're thrilled to bring on for the second episode of Better Things with me, Joe Bianca, the excellent TV analyst for NBC Sports. He's an NFL guy. He was just covering the Olympics. Randy Moss, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Joe. Glad to be here. I was told uh, an adult beverage was That's mandatory, right. so cheers Cheers to uh, you. Yeah, what's, what are your, Randy told us off the air that he has very specific instructions for his margarita. How do you, how do you take it? <laughs> They're so specific, Joe, that for a Christmas gift one time, a friend of mine bought me business cards with margarita recipes on them to hand to bartenders. I've never gone that far, but it was a nice <laughs> gesture. Uh, nice, uh, nice quality Reposado tequila, nice bit of Grand Marnier, agave nectar, fresh squeeze lime juice. Nothing too extravagant. Mm, you fancy, huh? Yeah, very good, though. <laughs> love it. I mean, I love, I love a person who knows what he wants. So let's let's talk first off about the Olympics. You just got back from covering the Olympics. You did a great job. I was like I was pointing out to, to my girlfriend when I saw you on TV. I was like, that's the guy who hosts the writer's room. <laughs> when I'm not around, um, so that so that was cool. Um, you did a great job, obviously, but but how was it? How was the experience, especially being in China? I feel like it was much different this year with all the COVID protocols. How was it? I was carefully disguised in my winter garb with my COVID mask on, which was uh, which was mandatory by the IOC and the Chinese authorities. It was an interesting experience. We were basically COVID sports prisoners there. Uh, we were severely restricted on where we could and couldn't go. So we basically, for a month, just shuttled back and forth from the hotel to the venue office and the, um, you know, the, the area there where we actually did interviews and such. And that's it. We just went back and forth there. Um, so it wasn't as good of an experience as it was, say, when I went to Russia for the Winter Olympics uh, back in Sochi or London for the Summer Olympics in 2012. But I'm glad I went. I mean, it's a where else am I going to get to hang with uh, Sean White and Eileen Gu and people like that, right? Yeah, for sure. And I, but I, one of the things I noticed about the Olympic coverage, it was a there was a shocking amount from the opening ceremonies, at least, of kind of the talk about of, of the, uh, the the repressive Chinese government and the whole thing going on with Russia and Ukraine. Did you feel any of that? Did you feel any kind of like cloud or, or murkiness over this event? You know, I didn't from where I was, other than the fact that it was completely different with with basically no fans. There were just a very few yeah. select Chinese fans and they had a, a cheerleader there. And they could they weren't allowed to cheer, though. They could only applaud because cheering might spread COVID. Right. We had to have COVID tests every morning at the hotel. It was it was crazy. The amount of precautions. Oh, they were taking. So from that standpoint, yes. But as far as, you know, any of the uh, repressive nature of the Chinese government or anything like that, once we got into the competition and from where I was in the mountains, we didn't we didn't ex get too much of that. Gotcha. So let's talk horse racing. This is obviously your bread and butter. There's a lot of stuff that you do. You're a renaissance man in, in, in sports. I want to ask you about a lot of that different stuff. But let's talk about horse racing. And, and I kind of want to know how you got on this path to begin with. I read that you used to sneak out to the track when you were a kid in Hot Springs. Are there some are there some horses or there was some score that you made that, that kind of really set you on this path? You know, 
Joe, being raised in Hot Springs, uh, you really don't have much of a choice but to be a horse racing fan. I mean, one of my earliest memories is being in my in the car in the back seat with my parents before seat belts, by the way. And uh, we would stop and wait for the horses to cross Central Avenue, just like they still do at Saratoga. Now, they, they used to do that at Oakland Park. There were barns on both sides of the main drag. And you had a guard, a crossing guard who would stop the traffic and the horses would walk back and forth. And I was just fascinated by that, you know, beautiful animals. My parents were horse racing fans. I grew up in a neighborhood filled with horse trainers. Uh, my next door neighbor and dear friend was a fellow named Bob Holthus, who was the all-time leading trainer at Oakland Park before I think Steve Asmussen just broke his record. Uh, we took vacations with the Holthus family. I had another trainer, Jim Garut, lived on the other side of me. Trainer Dave Vance lived down the street. Another trainer, Bob Irwin, was in the Michigan Racing Hall of Fame, lived in our neighborhood. Uh, I hung out with their kids. You know, so I was uh, a horse racing fan from a very, very young age. I used to tell my father, he would go to the track and say, whatever you do, do not mark your program. I wanted him to come back with a fresh program because I would then take his racing form and handicap the races myself and try to guess who won. And I didn't want the program to be marked. But that was how I, you know, when you're raised in Hot Springs, it's it's really something special. Uh, the the, uh, the horse races in general and the races at Oakland Park. And that sort of start me on a meandering path that basically led to where I am right now. Totally. And I, that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I've never been to Hot Springs. But one of the things I noticed about Oakland is they always have a great crowd. Even on a weekday, it's thousands and thousands of people filling the grandstand. The only place that I've been to that I could compare that to is Saratoga. Now, obviously, Hot Springs is a much bigger place than Saratoga, which is kind of a small town. But yeah, how, how steeped in horse racing is Hot Springs? Hot Springs, I, the way I've described it to people that haven't been there, Joe, it, and, and I don't want to denigrate the town by saying this, but it's basically a poor Saratoga, right? Um, the, main, the, the, the racetrack is on the main drag, basically, just like Saratoga's in the middle of Saratoga Springs. Uh, both towns revolved around wide open gambling in their early in their early years and also revolved around thermal bathwaters, right? The Saratoga Springs was known for, you know, as, as a respite for where people would come and take therapeutic mineral baths and hot springs was exactly the same way. The locals in hot springs refer to hot springs as the spa, just as Saratoga does. Um, so there were a lot of similarities between hot springs and Oakland Park. And, you know, Hot Springs horse racing dates back to the early 1900s. So it's uh, it's been around there for a long time. Not quite as long as Saratoga, but uh, for a long time. And right. hot, it, it's incredibly popular. Uh, you talk about the, the crowds that it draws. Right? There's no professional sports in Arkansas. Um, and so this is something mm -hmm. that the people of Arkansas and the people of the surrounding region, you know, really get involved with. The, uh, the media in Arkansas covers Oakland Park as if it is a, you know, a major sport that, a, you know, another newspaper in a major market would cover. Um, and that's how I got started in the newspaper business. I actually handicapped for the major newspaper in Little Rock under somebody else's name starting when I was 13 years old. So I've been, 
I've been involved in the uh, the rate the sport for a long time. You're like a ghost ghost handicapper yeah. as as a kid. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk a little handicapping. What you know? First of all, how much? What's what's your handle like? You don't have to give me numbers, but just in general, how much are you betting on a weekly basis, on a, on a daily basis? And then when you do decide to bet, what what kind of strategies do you have? Do you, are you a horizontal player? Are you a vertical player? Win better? What what's a what's a typical day betting like for Randy Moss? You know, I don't bet as much as people think that I do, or unusually, as my wife thinks that I should. I'm one of these people that their wives actually tries to get them to bet more instead of instead of betting less. Wow. And the reason for that, Joe, is that it is basically my background and how I came up in horse racing as a as a newspaper handicapper, which is how I cut my teeth in Arkansas. Uh, newspapers in Texas, the Dallas Morning News and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I was known first and foremost as a handicapper. And I poured so much energy into handicapping the horse. I was really good at it. Um, that's That was my reputation as a, as a handicapper. Um, and I spent so much time in all the different elements of, of handicapping that trainers would actually call me and ask me what I thought about their horses and what I thought about the competition and things like that. So back then at the tracks where I was at, which would primarily be Oakland Park, uh, Louisiana Downs in the summer, I had a huge advantage because parimutuel wagering is me against you. And I knew that I knew more about the horses on that circuit and the trainers on that circuit and everything about it than anybody else did, had a major advantage. Then I shifted from the newspaper business to the television business, where one week I would be in Saratoga, the next week I might be in Del Mar, the next week I might be at Arlington Park, you name it. And suddenly I went from being at an advantage to being at a disadvantage. Now I'm playing against the people who, like me, are parked at that racetrack and know way more about the ins and outs of that particular race meeting than I do. And I don't like to be at a disadvantage in anything. So I, I scaled back. Uh, the I never was a huge better at all, although I hit some pretty big pick sixes with, with a partner in my day. But I, um, but I now I, I bet maybe a few times a week, um, mostly a combination of, of win bets and then uh, trifecta and exact accommodations, strategic exact accommodations, and things like that. Uh, but gotcha. Do you, do you do sports betting at all? No, I don't sports bet at all. Uh, and most of that is because the sport that I know the most about, other than horse racing, would be football. And I worked for uh, 13 years for NFL Network, and of course, you know, sports betting when you're an employee of NFL Network was strictly taboo. So I, I never really got too too involved in sports betting, but it's it's certainly uh, something that I've thought about beginning to explore, especially now that it's more accessible than it ever has been before. Yeah, I mean it's really catching on. Like I I, I for the longest time did not like betting sports because you know, I'm I'm a little bit of a purist when it comes to sports. Like I like the drama, you know. I, I like just watching a great like Sunday night game, and it's like two teams with a lot to play for. And I feel like it kind of ruins it sometimes. If you have like a heavy financial interest, you can't right. really enjoy it as much. But now FanDuel's in New York. 
playoffs were around. And I obviously opened up an account. Now, now the challenge is not to bet horses and sports together on the same day because that'll get you in trouble. Yeah, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, that's that's a that's a good assessment. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to ask actually about your your NFL experience. I feel like people who are in horse racing sometimes get pigeonholed because it's such a niche niche sport, and there's it's you know it's an insular sport in that in that way too. Uh, how were you able to make that jump to to more uh, broad appeal sports like the NFL? Uh, Joe, I've been incredibly lucky my whole life. I'm, you know, I've I've lived a charm life, knock on wood. And I know, you know, there's the old saying that, you know, you make your own luck and I do work hard and I have worked hard. But, you know, there's a lot of people in this world that have worked hard that have never really gotten the breaks that maybe some other people have. And, you know, throughout my life, I've managed to meet the right people at the right time. Uh, the way I got into the TV business uh, to begin with, I had done local television in Arkansas um, on the five o'clock news, six o'clock news, 10 o'clock news, just because it was, you know, horse racing at Oakland Park was such a big deal. But that was really the extent of my, you know, of my TV experience. And and then one day I was at the Kentucky Derby for newspaper and I was asked to appear on the what they call the breakfast at Churchill Nouns. ESPN used to have that on a regular basis on Kentucky Derby week. And I was asked to come on to handicap the Kentucky Derby. And I was waiting in the wings for my uh, appearance on the set. And I happened to strike up a conversation with an older gentleman who told me that he was the former producer of all the CBS horse racing shows that I grew up watching with Jack Whitaker and Charles E. Canney and Haywood Hale Brune and Frank Wright, Secretariat's Kentucky Derby and Triple Crown. I grew up watching all those horse races, and I was literally enthralled by this guy and hanging on his every word. Little did I know that it was a fellow named Bill Creasy who was in charge of hiring all of the talent, pretty much, at ESPN. He was the godfather of ESPN. And the very next week, Bob Newmeyer, the late Bob Newmeyer, an old friend of mine, was uh, scheduled to work the Preakness for ESPN and couldn't because he had a conflict as the uh, TV play-by-play voice of the Boston Bruins who advanced in the Stanley Cup playoffs to every, everyone's surprise. So they needed someone at the last minute to fill in for Bob Newmeyer, and Bill Creasy said, I know who you're going to hire. I just met this young man. You're going to hire Randy Moss to come fill in on that weekend. And that was the weekend where the guy ran out on the racetrack and took a swing at Artax in the middle of the Maryland Breeders' Cup Sprint. And I was in the analyst chair for all that. And on Monday, Creasy told ESPN, you're going to offer this guy a full-time job. And that's how I got started at ESPN. When Bill Creasy left ESPN, he went to NFL Network and became the senior consultant at NFL Network. And Bill called me and said, have you ever thought about doing football? We're a little too jock heavy. We need someone who's got a little more of, of a journalism background. And so he had me fly out to NFL Network and do an interview with the people out there. That was 2008, before the 2008 season. And that's how I got to work for them. And it was a great experience. Was there any... Was there ever any concern that you would overshadow the other Randy Moss? By being so <laughs> you great? know, that was a liability, honestly. 
having the name Randy. That's what I was doing. No, yeah, I because like, I was always, you know, the, the players would call me OG, the OG Randy Moss, the original Randy Moss. Uh, and I, I got a chance to, I, I got a chance to meet him one time, and I've corresponded with him on Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, I, I, he's a good guy, I think. But, uh, yeah, it was always a little bit of a pain in the ass to have to deal with the, the whole name thing. Well, now I'm now from from now on I'm calling you the OG Randy Moss. So that's 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 your title on any show I'm involved in. Uh, but what? So were you nervous like that because you hadn't done any real TV up until that point, at least not national TV, right? Like how how nervous were you that first time that when they just stuck uh, you out talking there? about for ESPN for the Preakness Horse Racing? I had done uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. earlier that same year. Of uh, if if you remember way back in the day, Fox. Uh, the first Fox horse racing telecasts were largely from Santa Anita, but you know Ron Ellis was on it, and uh, Joe Buck was actually the host of some of those horse racing shows. And they had one of those shows at Santa Anita, uh, but they also had a show the same day at Oakland Park, and they were looking for some people uh, since their main talent was at Santa Anita to to sort of be at the satellite site at Oakland Park. It was a full telecast of the Oakland Handicap from Hot Springs, but they asked me to do that. Barry Tompkins was the host. Uh, Kate and Bradar and myself sat on the set with Barry Tompkins and were the, uh, were the two analysts. So that was how I cut my teeth on it. And then the, the preakness gotcha. came a little bit later. I, I, was, I was a little nervous. Yeah, I won't, I won't, uh, you know, I won't lie. Yeah. But, I mean... The way I've always looked at it, Joe, most of the times, even as many times as I've done it, most shows when I start, when the show begins, I've got butterflies and I'm a little bit nervous. And I think I tell people that that's probably yeah. a good thing because the time, if the time ever comes when you're not just, you know, a little bit amped up and a little bit hyped up, you're maybe a little too relaxed and that, that's when some bad things might happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, you hear athletes say that too. When when they stop getting butterflies before the game, that's that's when they know it's time to to hang it up. But I think it's just uh, for, it's one of those things. Obviously, I've I've done a couple of small TV appearances, nothing like you, but it's just one of those things where I think you can kind of settle in and be like, well, I'm on this for a reason, you know. And I, I think that you had, like you said, you had cut your teeth doing smaller stuff. You were respected handicapper, so I think that kind of takes over a little bit. I wanted to talk about the uh, the handicapping bit a little bit more because. You were the, the creator of the revolutionary Moss pace figures in the DRF, which I thought were great Thank and you. very, very helpful. Uh, no disrespect to time form, which they have now, but I just I, I found the Moss pace figures a little bit more accurate, at least in my handicapping. Was that something you had always done on your own and then it just became part of DRF? Or is that something that DRF tasked you with? It coming was up with? something that I had always done on my own. I hadn't uh perfected them in the way that i did when drf asked uh for pace figures initially they were supposed to be the buyer pace figures and so andy buyer and i who had had a partnership on the you know i'd, I'd been associated with andy in the in the buyer speed figures since basically i met him at the at my first kentucky derby in 1980 and so Andy and I spent months going over the speed figures and going over different ways to do them and the theories behind them and the mathematics behind them. 
in the best way to do it. And it got to be so complicated and so time consuming that Andy just basically said, I'm out. If you do it, if you, you want to keep doing it, then, you know, you do it. And I'll tell Daily Racing Forum that I'm out and DRF wanted to continue them. And they wanted to call them. It was their idea. They wanted to call them the Moss Pace figures. So, you know, whatever. I said, okay. Um, and that's how they got. That's how they got started. But I mean, I've still got the spreadsheets that are like twenty-five, thirty thousand rows, and an incredible amount of mathematics went into the Pace figures. And maybe someday I'll be able to resurrect them somewhere in another form. There were some perfections that I wanted to make in them that would have made them even better. But the, the uh, DRF had moved on to, you know, creating and improving formulator and things like that. Understandably, they had some other uh, more pressing details that they wanted to get to, but maybe someday. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, you just want to you want to just send them to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll pay you. I'll pay you ten dollars a card, something like that. You can call them the Joe Pace figures if you want. Um, but no, because you worked with Andy Buyer creating uh, working on the buyer figures for a while. Right. Is that true? Still do. Yeah, I met him in 1980. Um, I was doing, I you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, actually, uh, still in high school, I had sort of developed my own speed figures system. Uh, I started, like I told you, handicapping when I was 13 years old for the newspaper, and you know, I was kind of making my own rudimentary speed figures, not nearly as good as Andy's figures. And then when picking winners came out. I incorporated that into my own handicapping and, you know, people in Arkansas that, uh, that bought the picks in the, in the newspaper, as you can imagine, I mean, they thought I was some kind of savant because nobody else had speed figures. I mean, right. this was, this was the 1970s, right. And picking winners had just come out and you're at a racetrack in rural Arkansas and not nearly as sophisticated of a gambler would attend Oakland Park as would New York or Southern California during those years. Um, and so here I was doing speed figures and handicapping with speed figures. And there'd be horses 10, 15 to 1 in the program that the speed figures would be all over. And, you know, it, when you're the only one doing speed figures at a track, it's, it's like, you know, it's like the dream that people have right now. And, 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 and that's what I was experiencing. So when I met Andy in 1980, uh, there were a few differences in my figures and his. And he asked me to, uh, to completely um, switch over all of my speed figures to his. And so back then, what would happen is that Andy and Mark Hopkins and me, I think Jay Privman was part of this earlier group. Uh, we would we would do speed figures for our particular racetracks. This is before the computer era. And we would fax them back and forth to each other for gambling purposes. And that's how we would we would gamble on shippers and things like that would be uh, using the figures that we had gotten off fax from each other. Then that morphed into a deal with Bloodstock Research for the figures. Then the Racing Times, which was an early competitor to the racing form. And then from when the racing times went under, they switched over to DRF. And I've been I've been making figs with Andy ever since. Well, and you talked about how how hard it was, how labor intensive it was to create the pace figures. Obviously, you're dealing with multiple fractions instead of just one final time. What was the what were the differences in, in the formulation? Like how did it come? How does that 
pace figure formulation compared to the to the buyer work? Well, one thing you had to do, in my opinion, uh, to get accurate pace figures is to be able to solve the conundrum of sprint figures and route figures. You wanted to make them interchangeable so that when a horse ran six furlongs uh, in the middle of a mile on a 16th race and now dropped down to a sprint distance, you wanted to be able to have a pace figure that would translate from route to sprint or vice versa. And in order to do that, Daily Racing Form gave me access, Equibase also, to pretty much all the data in their system. And I could download reams and reams of data and and actually do real life, real world testing. You know, I would say, okay, give me all of the horses at this, this, this racetrack that went from six furlongs to a mile and a 16. And it would give me all of their races and all of their fractional times. And I could put them into an Excel spreadsheet and I could calculate that all for myself. And, it, you know, it was little things like that that you had to do for the pace figures that you you, you didn't necessarily have to do um, for the buyer speed figures. But I think that's what makes pace figures successful is, you know, being able to test them with tens, hundreds of thousands of races um, to be able to get them just exactly the way you want them. I mean, they're so valuable, too, because I think, you know, without them, you see the, the horses in the form, you see the ones, you see, you see five horses with a bunch of ones, you probably know there's going to be a speed duel. But a lot of times, a lot of times it's a lot more murky than that, where you have horses that are up near the lead, not necessarily on the lead, um, coming from different tracks, different distances, like you say. Um, so that's why I, I think it's been so valuable. But, you know, that, that, that's been a new revolution, the pace figure revolution. We've got the thoroughgraph sheets. I don't know if you use the thoroughgraph or, or the ragazin sheets. I think Trackus has also helped a lot in terms of figuring out fractions and, and how well horses have run relative to other horses in the same race. Is there like another revolutionary thing on the horizon? Like what, what do you, where do you think handicapping and, and creating figures is going from here on out? Well, I, I think the next you know, real revolution on the horizon is going to be if the industry can ever perfect um, the mechanism behind the GPS stuff, what they've tried to do. Um, we can actually race races? Is yeah. that the revolution? Yeah, I mean, what, what they've tried to do, I want to emphasize the word tried. And, and it's a noble yeah. attempt, but it just so far it hasn't been able to pan out uh, technologically. Yeah. So that you can get, uh, you know, all sorts of different little data points of information. Uh, I've, I've, I recently spoke to a gentleman uh, named Dr. David Lambert, who's been involved with, uh, you know, picking out horses using biometrics for years and years and years. Um, really a fascinating guy from the UK. And he's sort of at the forefront of technology that can enable you to, like, study a horse's breathing and study a horse's heart rate during the running of a race and be able to tell at what point during a race, pace-wise, distance-wise, the horse begins to actually show signs of stress. And you know, little things like this, you know, are are something that I think is, is that horse players are going to have access to, 
in the next wave of handicapping whenever something like that will be absolutely perfected. Gotcha. I mean, now that's something they're already doing in human sports, I think, too. Right. They have, they have them wearing the trackers. I think there's, there's so much of that data that's going on in human sports that I think it's only a matter of time to come to, to horse racing. But like you said, if we can't get the timing, the, the actual timing of the race right. You know, nothing else really matters. But yeah, so so we, uh, you know, we've been on the writer's room a couple of times. You know, you know, our ideal. We like to talk about the broad scope issues of racing and, you know, who, who's who's the bad guys right now? Who's the who's the uh, the kind of the target of, of the racing public? Now that seems to be Bob Baffert. And we've, we've talked about Baffert plenty on the show. I don't want to get into it too much. I just wanted to get some reaction from you about from the uh, the Franklin County judge earlier this week denying the stay of his 90 day suspension and the whole argument that, you know, he's going to be irreparably damaged that they were trying to that his lawyers were trying to make. What's your reaction to that? It surprised me a little bit. I, I expected Judge Wingate to grant the stay simply because that's what was the, a general rule of thumb with trainers in similar situations in the past. It had been almost automatic that judges would grant the stay. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with that whole case going forward. Certainly, you know, Baffert and his attorneys look like that uh, they're behind the eight ball right now in in trying to get uh, a stay of not only the suspension, but but of Churchill Downs's decision to, you know, to unilaterally bar him for two years and keep his horses from getting derby points. Um, as, as the news just broke today, as I know you know, I mean, those a couple of the top Baffert horses, including Messier, have been transferred, Messier to Tim Yachtin, uh, Baffert's former assistant. So it looks like, and it's good news for racing fans, as Bob pointed out, it looks like we'll be able to see Messier in uh, not only in races like the San Anita Derby, but theoretically if he does well in the Kentucky Derby. So the, the whole thing is just really unfortunate. It, it, it's it's so unfortunate on so many different levels. Um, and it's really given horse racing a black eye in the general public, even if racing didn't really necessarily deserve to have a black eye for this particular situation. Just because when people, when when newspaper people who don't know horse racing put headlines, you know, derby winner doped, and then people that don't know racing read that and just assume that this was some kind of hugely nefarious thing. Uh, and, you know, Medina Spirit won the Derby with all these illegal medications coursing through his veins and he never would have won it otherwise and things like that. It, it really uh, it really does the sport. I think it deserves. I totally agree. My only my only pushback slightly would be that I think feel like this is kind of karmic balancing because I think there were so many ugly things that were going on in racing for so long away from the headlines, you know, that should have been reported on and should have been scrutinized by the media. It didn't get reported on because racing wasn't a big enough deal. Whereas this wasn't a big deal on on its own, but it's kind of like a makeup call where it actually got forced racing to get its stuff together. Yeah. And you You know, know, it goes along hand in glove. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And, and what goes along with that though, Joe is, Horse racing doesn't get the media coverage at all now that it used to because there essentially are no more horse racing riders left at newspapers around the country. I mean, when I first started, every major newspaper in America had a designated horse racing rider, and some of them in the major horse racing markets, most of them had more than one. 
Uh, when I went to the Kentucky Derby in 1980, my very first Kentucky Derby, every every sports newspaper legend that you could think of was in the press box because that's what they did. They covered the Kentucky Derby. I mean, Red Smith was there. It, I mean, for crying yeah. out loud, and people that were just my idols growing up, reading them in the newspaper every day were there. And now all that's gone. You know, a horse, I, I think maybe the Louisville Career Journal still has a racing rider, but maybe they don't. I don't know. Um, you don't see them. You don't see them anywhere. Um, and so the sport doesn't get the scrutiny, the journalistic scrutiny that it should get, that it used to get in the past. And to a certain extent, I think that scrutiny at times would help keep racing on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And now I think just there are a lot of people that run racetracks in the country that aren't really worried about that. They think, oh, if something happens, we'll never find out about it. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, unless it's something catastrophic, like a drug defue in the Derby, like you don't see right. that that kind of reporting. On the flip side, though, you know, there was obviously that those big blaring headlines from 2019. Every time a horse broke down at Santa Anita, that was a national controversy. You know, kind of, it was a little bit of a smaller story last week or a couple of weeks ago, a little tiny story we talked about on the writer's room. It was in a Pasadena Star News about the CHRB report from 2021 and about how breakdowns and deaths were basically cut in half from where they were in 2018 and 2019. And, you know, I, as horrible as a, as a couple of years as it's been for racing, so many bad headlines, so many things you have to ex try to explain to people who aren't into racing and, and you're, you're embarrassed to do so. I think it helped get people's heads out of their asses a little bit to the point where they think and they know now that the most important thing, not just to us, but to the public, is the safety of the horse. And I don't think that that was the case necessarily for a long time in racing. What's your feeling on that? Do you think we finally turned a corner and, and people are actually looking out for the horses, number one, now? Uh, I think that depends on where you're at. It depends on what track you're at, what level of racetrack you're at. Uh, I think that's still a problem at minor league racetracks. And it, in the minor league racetracks, certainly don't get the scrutiny that a Santa Anita would get. Um, but for the most part, at major racetracks, I think there's been a sea change in the way uh, the industry has viewed the safety of the racehorse. When they, when they look at Santa Anita and see what happened out there and how Santa Anita was very nearly shut down, uh, maybe even permanently by the state of California. And it was a, it was a pretty hairy situation out there for a while. And and you hate you hate to say that you know good has come out of horses dying, um, but you know maybe those horses that unfortunately uh, passed away during that period of time at Santa Anita uh, have saved the lives of far more racehorses in the ensuing years, just because of the attention that was drawn to that and, and what Santa Anita and the Stronic people have done out there to try to mitigate that and to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. They, they deserve a lot of credit for all of the protocols that they've put in. And the horsemen deserve a lot of credit out there for going along with the protocols and understanding how important it is. Yep. And Del Mar, too, has, has a great safety record and they, they do a, a lot of good stuff. Um, yeah, it's just it's one of those things where you're never going to get the credit like you got the blame, but you got to do it anyway, you know, because it's the it's the right thing to do. 
for the sport. So let's talk a little bit about Derby season. You're going to be uh, reporting from the, not from, but on the Louisiana Derby card this Saturday. Uh, it's uh, not as quite a, as good of a race as the Risen Star, but I have no idea when this is going to air. So let's not talk specifically about that race. Let's talk more about generally about the, the Derby season. You mentioned Messier, I think. That was kind of the variable heading into the, the latter stages of this Derby trail, whether or not Baffert's horses were going to be able to run in the Derby, whether or not they were going to be transferred. It looks like now they're starting that process now that Baffert's last reprieve has been denied by that judge. What's your impression on the three-year-olds? Do you think there's any superstars out there? Do you think it's a subpar crop? What do you think? Uh, I think it's a decent crop. Uh, I, I don't think, I think we're a little too early before the major derby preps as we're, as we're taping this is before the, even the Louisiana derby, uh, to really make a definitive judgment about, you know, how good the crop looks to be, uh, by the time we get to the Kentucky derby, but hey, there's some pretty solid horses out there. I think, um, I mean, yeah. forbidden kingdom looked awfully good winning the San Felipe, good. um, you know, you have to be at least a little bit skeptical about his ability to carry his speed uh, a mile and a quarter, much less a mile and an eight for the Santa Anita Derby. And then Messier, of course, beat Forbidden Kingdom at a seven furlong sprint distance. Maybe it was six and a half. I don't remember. But it was a sprint distance in California and, and beat him pretty convincingly. And so the way Messier ran in his last start certainly would, would, uh, would have to lead you to believe that he's probably – um, the leader right now of the of the three year old division heading into the Santa Anita Derby, but I mean I'm a big fan of Smile Happy. I'm a big fan of Zandon, uh, Chad Brown's horse. You know they were second and third behind Epicenter and the Risen Star, and they both had their excuses and both ran very well in defeat. Certainly would make you uh, believe that they were sitting on another huge effort, and I guess they'll meet in the Bluegrass probably. Uh, in their scheduled start. So that should be a race to really look forward to. And Epicenter looked good in the Risen Star, but my primary concern about Epicenter is uh, if Forbidden Kingdom makes it to the Kentucky Derby. Uh, Epicenter, is, you know, we don't know yet if he's necessarily a need-the-lead type horse. If he races back, I think in that race called the Gunrunner, I think he set a fairly close second early in the race before he went up and engaged the leader and went on with it. Um, but certainly a horse like Forbidden Kingdom, uh, if Epicenter continues to show a front-running style, would certainly maybe compromise uh, the way he would like to run. I mean, that's my impression, too. You know, I don't have like a specific horse that I like, but most of these preps have been won on the lead. You think of, like you said, Forbidden Kingdom, uh, epicenter, even classic Causeway in the last two Tampa Tampa preps. Uh, Messier was, was a front running horse as well in the Bob Lewis. That to me might set it up for somebody like you said, Smile Happy, but maybe even Secret Oath. And so that's what I wanted to ask you about. Secret Oath is running in the Arkansas Derby, your home, your home race next Saturday. So I'm sure you got some opinions on it. What What do you think her prospects are? Not just for that race, but if for if they decide to go to the Derby. Is anybody out there surprised that Wayne Lucas decided to run the Philly in the, no. <laughs> the Arkansas Derby? Yeah, let me, let me, the let moment me, I heard he was considering it, I was like, she's going to run. She's going to run, let me, yeah. Let me give you a blast from the past and, and, uh, and tell you a story. I'm considerably older than you are. Uh, probably one of my, uh, my biggest, um, I, I guess, maybe feathers in my handicapping hat as a newspaper handicapper 
years ago in Arkansas was the 1984 Arkansas Derby. And let me set it up. The week before the Arkansas Derby was the fantasy stakes for three-year-old fillies. And it was a showdown between a Lasbarera-trained filly named My Darling One, who was a very flashy chestnut, had white all the way up to her shoulders on her legs. She almost looked like a, a paint horse out there. Very talented. Yeah. And Althea, trained by Wayne Lucas. And Althea was expected to go to the lead. She was ridden by Pat Valenzuela. And when she left the starting gate, she stumbled and went to her nose, and she was in last place. When they turned midway, when they turned onto the backstretch, about midway down the backstretch, Althea makes this huge run up along the rail to get back up into contention and gets shut off. And Valenzuela has to check, and Althea gets knocked back to last place again. It was only like a six-horse field. Then she circled the field on the second turn, hooked up with my darling one at the top of the stretch. They opened up about 12 lengths on the field. They went a mile and a 16th and 141 and change and got what would be the equivalent of a buyer speed figure of about 108 or 109 today. And this was after Althea stumbled at the start and got shut off on the backside. Wayne decided to bring her back seven days later and run her in the Arkansas Derby. And I thought she was running against Gate Dancer, who went on to win the, win the Preakness. She was running against At the Threshold, who went on to finish second in the Kentucky Derby. I thought she was an absolute cinch. I mean, Wayne, Wayne was aggressive enough to run her back on one week's rest after that effort in the fantasy, and she blew to the lead and opened up and drew off and won by seven in the Arkansas Derby. So Wayne certainly has a lot of experience. That, then winning colors, coming back to win the Kentucky Derby in 1988, Philly against the boys. It, it surprised nobody that Wayne was this aggressive with Secret Oath. I loved Secret Oath's, Oath's last few races. The first race she ran at Oakland Park, I remember um, calling Jerry Bailey, my buddy, on the phone and said, you got to watch this. You won't believe this. this Wayne's got a, uh, he's, he's got a five-star prospect here. And she's looked just as good in every race since. I, I, I don't have a high opinion right now of the three-year-old Colts that are at Oakland, uh, that are based yes. at Oakland. I don't know who's going to come in for the race right now. I don't yeah. think any big names are, really. Uh, so I yeah. think she's going to be the favorite, and I think she deserves to be the favorite, and I think she'll probably win. Yeah, and I mean, the, owner, the owners are saying that they don't want to run in the Derby right now. I'm like, just give it time. She runs by, wins by 10 lengths in the <laughs> Arkansas Derby. Right. He's running in the Kentucky Dirt. There's absolutely no way they're, they're going to stick with the plan uh, to race her in the Oaks. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we love. And we see, in a, especially in an era where, you know, horses run three, four, five times a year, and then, then they, they're whisked off to stud. One thing you know about Wayne, he's going to run his horses, and he's not afraid to, to put them in spots that you wouldn't necessarily think. So that's, that's what's great about him, one of, one of many things. So this was a lot of fun with you, the OG Randy Moss. Uh, but I just I wanted I want I want our audience to get to know you just a little bit better. You're obviously a very smart guy. You know a lot about sports. Um, what what is Randy Moss's typical off day like? What what do you like to do outside of the track and, and sports? Well, I like to uh, I like to play basketball. I like to work out. Um, 
uh, I like to uh, I like to make my margaritas at night and have a little nightcap. <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it's to do this job right. It's it's time consuming. It really is, and and I spend most of my days that I'm not on TV or preparing to be on TV on site here, like I am at a hotel in Stanford, Connecticut, where NBC Sports is based. I'll spend it preparing and I'll make trip notes on every stakes race run at every major track in America, which is pretty time consuming in its, you know, in and of itself. And just try to gather as much information as I can about the horses that I may or may not be talking about uh, in the coming weeks. So that, as my wife will tell you, that, that takes a lot of my time. Sounds boring, doesn't it? I was going to say that's a very, that's what I was saying. I was going to say that's a very boring answer, but it's probably why you are where you are now. That kind of dedication. So, so I, I respect it. I respect the honesty. Randy, man, thank you so much for coming on. Always appreciate talking to you. And we always love when you come on the writer's room too. You obviously have an open invite there anytime you want to come on. Uh, we, I appreciate you making time, especially this week from the, from the hotel. Anytime for you, Joe. Take care, buddy. Thank you so much to Randy Moss for coming on the show. Great conversation. He's just a great guy. He knows so much about so many different things. It's always good to talk to him, but I appreciate him coming on in the early days of this new show. And in honor, in honor of Randy Moss, we're going to do a little NFL future bets here. The NFL draft is coming up in about a month. It's at the end of April. Um, and you can bet on who's going to be number one overall, number two overall. You can get bet over-unders on position groups in the in the first round. That, to me, is a little bit interesting. So I'm going to give you guys a couple of flyers to maybe take if you're going to bet the NFL draft because what kind of degenerate does not want to bet on a bunch of guys walking up to the stage and putting on hats? If that doesn't get your blood flowing, I don't know what does. So we're going to go, first of all, we're going to go number one. For the number one pick, we're going to go Ika Maquanu, nicknamed Icky, plus 850 to go number one overall to the Jacksonville Jaguars. A lot of people think that Aiden Hutchinson is going to be the pick here. I think... The Jaguars are going to keep trying to build around Trevor Lawrence. They signed a bunch of wide receivers. They did sign, re-sign their left tackle. They signed a new guard. I still think the offensive lineman is going to be the pick here. And Icky Aquano, I think, is the most versatile of the guys they can pick. He's plus 850. Aiden Hutchinson's a huge favorite to go number one overall right now. So I'll take Icky Aquano plus 850 to go number one. And then we're going to go number two. Slight bit of a hedge here. If Hutch goes number one to the Jaguars, I like Malik Willis plus 400 to go number two to the Detroit Lions. Lions have Jared Goff under the cap this year. He's probably going to be the starter this year, but they can get out of that contract after this season. So I'm going to take Malik Willis plus 400 and think that the Lions are going to go try to get their quarterback of the future in this draft. Aiden Hutchinson is also plus 400 in that spot. So if he doesn't go number one, that could be good value, but I'll stick with Malik Willis in that spot. And there's a couple over-unders. This is all a crapshoot. Things can break a whole a whole bunch of different ways. I got three over-unders for you in the first round. We're going to go running backs under 0.5. This has been a trend in the NFL where the running back has become a less premium position over time. Last year, as far as I know, there was only one running back taken in the first round. I could be wrong about that, but I think it was just Najee Harris going to the Steelers. And I think a lot of people just saw him as a special kind of prospect. I don't think there's that guy this year, and I think that combined with the fact that the running back position has become more interchangeable in today's NFL. So I'm going to go under .5 running backs in the first round, so that's got to be zero. I'm going to go wide receivers under 5.5 as well. I think this is a little bit of murkier position because I think there's probably six or seven guys, a couple guys who are on the cusp that could be late first round, early second round picks. 
probably going to depend on where the board, the way the board breaks. But I just don't think there's enough surefire number one wide receivers in this draft to say there's definitely going to be six plus guys taken. So we'll go under five and a half for wide receivers taken in the first round. And we're going to go offensive players over 16 and a half. You can get these odds at DraftKings, plenty of other places. Over 16 and a half for offensive players in the first round. There's 32 total picks in the first round. So you need 17. You need a, a slim majority of offensive players. I just think in the NFL, the, the the trend is towards offense and less defense. You try to build defense on the cheaper side, maybe through free agency. You want to draft offense so you can have that core of wide receivers and quarterbacks and tight ends and offensive linemen. So we'll go over 16 and a half for offensive players taken in the first round of the NFL draft, which is coming up in a month. Once again, thank you so much to Randy Moss for coming on the show. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time on Better Things.